0: Hello, I'm Jan Orman, and this is the Black Dog Institute Being Well podcast. I want to introduce you to someone I think you'll find very interesting. Jocelyn Lowinger is a medical graduate who's worked as a medical writer, a journalist, and who now works as a coach for health professionals. I think the community at large, and many health professionals for that matter, don't actually understand a career path like Jocelyn's. If you're a doctor, you see patients. That's not what Jocelyn does. Jocelyn has a story of her own, but she also has a lot of knowledge from her experience as a coach. As a result, she's become a bit of a champion for medical graduates who want to forge careers outside of clinical practice. Not everyone in medicine is happy.
1: I'd say the profession as a whole is in some level of distress Because of the politics around it, funding, jobs, there's not enough jobs and all of those constraints on the actual system, individuals within the system are going to have varying degrees of flourishing within that. So there are some people who are just thriving and very happy and other people who, for whatever reason, are struggling and finding a really tough place to be working. So, yeah, hi, I'm Jocelyn and I'm an unusual sort of a doctor. My main work is with other doctors and helping them with their wellbeing, with their performance enhancement, with their professional skills and managing their careers overall. I was an intern in 94 and I have no recollection of any doctor support service. I'd never heard the term doctors in distress. It just seemed cope or leave. I just don't ever recall that conversation of it being okay for things to be hard. It was just sort of suck it up, sweetheart. This is just what it is. People suicided. So I remember one of my fellow medical students, So I found it fairly early into our intern year that she'd suicided. So I think there's fairly drastic consequences for having the expectation that everybody's happy and rosy and not having an escape valve or any acceptance that some people are going to struggle and that actually with support, it's all okay. You can get through it. I don't know that it's changed all that much in terms of that's the expectation. It's just that now people have got more support. They've got peer support and... I don't think the answer is necessarily make everyone more resilient either. Clearly, there needs to be system changes as well. I decided to do medicine on a bit of a whim. It was kind of almost an accident. At the point in time when I was finishing school, it happened to be I want to do science and research and save the world. And so a well-meaning teacher said, oh, well, then do medicine because there's better jobs in research if you do it through a medical view than just straight science. So I went, okay, so I filled in my forms and got into medicine and here I am six years of medical school later and you've totally forgotten why you entered it. You're just sucked into the conveyor belt of the system and feeling it really powerful because I can do all these things and, and then realising the enormous cavernous gap between medical school and actually being a doctor. It's like from not being a mother to being a mother. It's like it's indescribable. When you're a medical student, you follow along teams, you have very limited responsibilities. So you all write medication charts and do things, but always with very close supervision. But once the next day happens and you're magically a doctor, all of that close supervision often just disappears and people are asking you things to, to do things that you may never have come across. And there's that kind of paralysing moment of, oh, my God, like this is not a game anymore, It's real. At the end of the year I was pregnant, (laughs) which was kind of like my light at the end of the tunnel because I was like, it was countdown now into my second year when my baby was due. So I then kind of, once I felt I felt pregnant about September of that year, so once that happened, I then moved into let me just survive until I have the baby and then I didn't even think my career beyond that really at all at that stage. So I got maternity leave and then I didn't go back to that job at the hospital. I did some part-time work in a different hospital in their emergency department. I didn't have my own practice, but I did a lot of work. So by the time I had my third baby, I got sick and took some leave and I think I'm still on that leave because I just, well, I don't know that I ever decided never to go back. So that would be from about 2001 to about... 2013. I got into medical writing and medical journalism. I did that for four or so years till it petered out. Then I did a public health degree and then did work in quality use of medicines and worked for big organisations like Booper and Health Direct Australia. And at some point along that journey, I hired a coach to help manage the politic of big corporate organisations because it's tough and medical environments are different and I was reasonably senior and lots of people had coaches, so I started working with a coach. And I loved it. So from that, I worked with my coach for about two and a half years. What coaching did for me was finding a place of self-acceptance. And that happened through a trust, relationship, conversation and a lot of self-reflection and a lot of, you know, going back and slowly starting to notice the things that I'm really good at and the things that I'm doing well. Because, you know, when you're trained as a doctor, you actually look for the flaws. You actually have to, if you're making a diagnosis, you need to be looking at what's not working. But it's not really functional when you're looking at as a person in the world So, I think it was gradually starting to realize that there's actually all these other ways I'm acting in the world and they're pretty good. And so the world stopped seeming black and white and started to be shades of gray and then color. I would say most of my clients are early to mid career female doctors, generally with children. At some point, you take time off work and then have to go back to work. So whether it's six months or 12 months or whatever it is, there's that time where you feel like I've lost touch, I'm out of the flow. So I've got to get myself back into work. There's a whole lot of role, there's logistic changes and identity changes. So that's hard for everybody when they're a parent. So it's trying to like integrate all of that and be a doctor and be faced with the fact that you know, how am I going to do the shift work and everyone else is doing it, so I'm a failure because I don't want to do it like everyone else is. What do I typically coach people in? So there's that kind of career indecision. I don't know what I'm doing. There's, I've got a baby now, things are different. There's, I need to pass my exams. And so there's a performance element. So those are the typical kind of things. Coaching's not therapy. It's not designed to treat your symptoms. Yes, in being coached and making and setting goals and learning about yourself, there's enough evidence that it helps stress depression, anxiety and wellbeing. So we know that coaching improves those things, but that's kind of as a secondary effect to where we're really here to help you, goal achievement and solutions and self-growth and capacity building. And the well-being thing happens along that way. So it's not its primary purpose. So if somebody said, my goal in life is to get rid of my symptoms of something, I will say, well, then you need to go and see a psychologist. So it's the same foundational evidence-based knowledge but applied in a different way. There's still a huge stigma about mental illness and people will not admit in public or even to other professionals that they've struggled with it, even though I'd say of my clients, probably 50% admit to me that they've either in the past had some mental health issues or currently struggling. I'm seeing a lot of hope around the edges. Just the fact that doctors are saying this is hard in anything is a good thing. You know, in medicine, there's sometimes a very clear way forward. If someone fractures their arm, It's very clear, fixed fracture. But a lot of times there's so many shades of grey and people could present with a set of symptoms that may be two or three different conditions. And then the internal pressure of, I have to get it right, I have to get it right, I can't get it wrong, almost constricts your thinking. I actually think there's a healthy level of uncertainty that makes a really good clinician. A little bit of doubt makes you think, have I covered off everything? Have I missed anything? And that's actually a safe practice. But the people who are clearly highly talented and highly bright, making very appropriate clinical decisions saying, I don't feel competent to do the job and I don't feel confident, that hampers people's career progression. They don't apply for job promotions. They don't put their hand up for opportunities. And they're feeling pretty miserable. So imposter syndrome, it's related to perfectionism and it's about feeling that you're a fake and a fraud, and that you kind of got here by accident. And yes, you might have passed exams, but that was a bit of a fluke. And I don't really know what I'm doing. And it's about an inaccurate assessment of your own capacities. And I think it's fairly well established that we're not that good at assessing our competence in that kind of way. Just about every client that comes to me, doesn't matter what their stated need is, Once they feel safe and start talking, there's always an issue of feeling not confident enough to manage or I'm an imposter and I'm talking about people who are specialists. They've got full specialist qualification and they're saying that to me as well as the Mel Junior registrars and residents. I've been doing kind of personal development on myself for about five years now. So I guess I see imposter syndrome as a little bit of a fellow traveller in my life. I get that imposter voice come up and I say, thanks, thanks for sharing. So a little bit of act, a little bit of diffusion, diffused from the voice. I've proved myself and I'm okay if I make a mistake. So if I fluff something up, it doesn't crush my entire self-esteem. So that's kind of how I deal with it. But, yeah, I get that negative voice. Before, I think I was very much the same as the doctors that I'm hearing, which is, I can't do this, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, getting on as a medicine didn't mean anything, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, I, I can't tell, you know, I don't know. So I kind of had that continual voice of I don't know, I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to kill somebody all the time in my head and it really it took a long time for me, a persistent effort in changing my attitude to myself. If doctors are listening, I would say if you're feeling not confident or like you're an imposter, you're not alone. There's lots of other doctors (laughs) that feel like that. And by and large, it's the highly talented, capable ones that feel like that. So feeling like that's not really a good indication of your true measure of capacity. There are ways to build your confidence and manage imposter syndrome and embrace embrace the uncertainty of being human and look after yourself and love your patients because after all, that's what it's all about. As humans, we all struggle, we all feel vulnerable and being a doctor doesn't make us any less human. So it just means we've got a certain set of knowledge and learning and skills that we're applying for the service of mankind, but you're also a human, it doesn't take away your essential humanity and it's okay to have any of those range of emotions that all people can feel. So I think, okay, for me, I'm 48, I've got four children and I'm at a stage in my life where I don't want to start from the beginning again in being a clinician. But I do think back and go, you know, if I could have had the support that I'm giving to other people, then I would have stayed in clinical practice. I wish that I had had the support that I'm able to give. So that's why it's quite meaningful to me because I get to work with other doctors and heal a little bit of myself at the same time.
0: I'm here with my producer, Zasha Rosen, and I'm just wondering what Zasha thinks of all that given that he's not a health professional and maybe it all sounds very strange and foreign to
2: him. Well, it's interesting because like as a non-medical person, it's like you're either a doctor or you're not. So you've got all of this training and this becomes a huge part of your identity. And it doesn't sound like Jocelyn has lost that part of her identity, but it's not something I'd really thought of before. The option of putting it down. Talk of imposter syndrome, talk of not being able to admit that it's hard.
0: You don't have to be a doctor to have imposter syndrome.
2: I think it resonates with a lot of people.
0: You know, medicine's a club that most people feel
2: as though they don't belong to. Does that include people who are actually inside the club?
0: Yeah, of course. Have you felt imposter syndrome yourself? Absolutely. It's a highly competitive environment and we're not allowed to make any mistakes. Traditionally, at least that is. Fortunately, things are becoming a little more human these days, but there's a long way to go. All the recent tragedies in medicine have forced people to start rethinking their expectations of doctors. I think more than anything else, doctors have learnt to be a little kinder to their peers and a little kinder to themselves. I don't know that the organisations within which doctors work have changed very much. I do hear still many stories about long hours, high expectations and unforgiving people within organisations.
2: What was your first reaction when you heard that coaches were a thing?
0: It's not therapy at all. I've certainly learnt that since I first heard about coaching.
2: What I've heard as well is that as a a medical student, like you go from high school where you're one of the smartest people in the class, and then you go to medical school at university, and suddenly you're not the smart kid anymore. Suddenly you have to cope with not having gotten any less smart, but suddenly you're just a really average person amongst your peers like if I admit weakness, they'll know that I don't belong here. Or even without the imposter syndrome, if I admit weakness, there's like hundreds of smarter people to take my place.
0: I don't think it applies to everybody, but I can tell you from personal experience, it certainly applied to me. I came from a country town where I was one of very few people in the pool of people that could do well enough to do something like medicine, which made me kind of smart in that group. But by the time I got to uni, I realised that
2: I wasn't smart at all. If you're at uni, you must have been smart. That's who you're comparing yourself with, doesn't it? Why, why pick only the, like, the very smartest people to compare yourself with?
0: Because that's what you do when you're a perfectionist.
2: Does that seem healthy?
0: No, I think it's not healthy. I think that's what leads to a whole lot of distress amongst medical graduates. The whole idea of having to seek a perfect outcome every time. We know, in fact, that perfectionism is one of the major personality characteristics that lead people to depression. So many people, once they do medicine, behave as though they've been born with a stethoscope around their necks, as though that's who they are and all they are, and their whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that they're a doctor. However, those people have often been very talented, very creative, many of them play musical instruments, they've been good at things other than science and maths at school and it's a real shame that they lose touch with that part of themselves. That for me is an important aspect of surviving in medicine. And another one is staying connected with people who aren't patients and colleagues, people outside of medical circles. I think these are things that health professionals often forget. And they partly leave those things out of their life because they're so heavily burdened with their workload.
2: I guess I also kind of imagine a medical professional listening to this and saying, yeah, sure, that's fine, but I just don't have time for that. Where am I going to find time?
0: That's exactly what they're going to say.
2: I mean, obviously, you wouldn't say that if you didn't feel that way, but do you think that that's an okay response?
0: No, I don't think it's an okay response because you've got to bear in mind that in order to help people be healthy, particularly psychologically healthy, you have to be healthy yourself. And if you're spending 24 hours a day being a doctor, keeping up your role as a doctor, then you're probably not going to be a well-rounded, healthy person who can understand other people's problems and who has personal survival skills.
2: What do you think that someone would get out of a story like Jocelyn's?
0: Well, I'm hoping that what people hear in Jocelyn's story are two things – One is the possibility of having a successful career outside clinical medicine, doing things that may not, in the first instance, appear to be consistent with the public's view of what a doctor is and does. And the other thing that I'm hoping they hear from Jocelyn is that it's okay to ask for help. You don't have to have a mental health condition to ask for someone's help in navigating your career, in navigating the kinds of difficult waters that you find yourself in where life intersects with career.
2: There are also a range of online mental health options which can be good for doctors as much as they can be for their clients. This includes the Black Dog Institute's MyCompass tool, which you can find at mycompass.org.au. It works on computers, tablets, and mobile phones. While these tools can be helpful, they're not a substitute for a mental health professional, and if you need help, you should see your GP. You can also call Lifeline in Australia on 13 11 14. And don't forget to check out the Black Dog Institute Being Well blog. You can find it by searching for Black Dog Institute Being Well. This episode was presented by Jan Orman, music by Chris Zabriskie and Lee Rosevear. It was
1: produced by me, I'm Sasha Rosen. Thanks for listening.